Welcome to the sixth episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast about everything geopolitics and forecasting. Today we are joined by Pavel Atanasov. Today, uh, Pavel works at Pitho.io, a firm which he co-founded with fellow GGWP alum Regina Joseph in 2016 that has combined exciting new research and technology to improve decision-making across industries. Before launching Pitho.io, Pavel worked as a product lead at Polyportfolio, an investment risk software company, as well as a postdoctoral fellowship um, at the Glo at the JG or the GJP, which we all know very well, the Good Judgment Project. Um, two experiences which we'll be discussing in further depth later today. Pavel graduated from Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania, something that we both love, given that we both actually went to college in Pennsylvania. Um, and Haverford competes with Franklin and Marshall in athletics. Yep. So yeah. a bit of a rivalry there. Sure. Um, and he received his PhD from Penn in psychology and decision processes. An entrepreneur, scientist, and academic. Without further ado, welcome, Pavel. Thank you. Uh, gr great to be with you guys. So I think we're going to jump off uh, talking a bit about your background. We sort of dug into it a bit in the introduction. Um, but like I said, you got your PhD at Penn. Uh, and you were also a postdoc at the Good Judgment Project. Can you speak a bit about your experience um, at Penn and what the risk and uh, sort of forecasting culture is like there? We're familiar with the uh, political risk lab that exists on campus and obviously Philip Tetlock is connected to the institution. Um, yeah, what was that like? Yeah, so the, the Penn PhD program is an incredible, uh, very intellectually stimulating, uh, very unusual program. So. The psychology program is made out of, you know, people who do clinical psychology, who study like depression and anxiety, people who do neuroscience and animal behavior. There's actually very few of us who study judgment and decision-making, which was my specialty. Um, so the beginning was just like a very broad base of knowledge in psychology in all kinds of areas. And then um, I started adding on to it a lot of the decision research was done actually at Wharton, which is right next to the psych department. Uh, Wharton is this big, you know, grand building and, and, and the psychology building is this, uh, is this like small 70s style building that looks sort of like a nuclear shelter. So I ended up spending quite a bit of time actually at Wharton, um, taking a lot of decision-making and statistics courses there. And, um, uh, I, I was a teaching assistant in a negotiations class for the MBA program and, um, and, and got to work with, with many folks who were doing work in between psychology and, and decision-making, like Howard Kunruter, who was the founder and director of the Wharton Risk Center, and uh, Jonathan Barron and Jason Dana, who were um, also uh, advising me, who were um, working on, on different aspects of you know, experimental economics, judgment, and decision-making. So initially, um, I wasn't so much focused on forecasting and prediction as just like having a base in judgment and decision-making psychology and statistics. And it was near the end um, when I was just uh, writing my dissertation that uh, Barb and, and uh, Barb Mellers and Phil Tetlock came to Penn from Berkeley and um, we got talking and, and that's where my, my interest in forecasting developed and it led to uh, to my postdoc at the Good Judgment Project. Yeah, so could you talk to us a little bit about 
sort of what you did during your postdoctoral scholarship under Bar Mellers and Philip Tetlock and sort of mm -hmm. what was it like having them as supervisors? Uh, I'm guessing you learned quite a lot from Bar Mellers about uh, decision-making processes mm -hmm. and Tetlock with, with sort of, you know, judgment in terms of forecasting because he's been mm -hmm. in that space for quite a while. So, right. you know, what did you learn about sort of forecasting and decision-making and sort of how is that sort of what, you know, what you've learned, how has that sort of helped you uh, later on in your forecasting career? Yeah, I mean, it was the foundation of everything I do. Um, so I've learned a lot over the years, but the first few years, uh, you know, my start in forecasting was just my work in the Good Judgment Project with Barb Mellers and Phil Tetlock. Um, so what I did there was um, I, I started focus, being focused a lot on the prediction market side. And then over time, I was focused on the comparison between different systems like prediction markets and polls, and also worked on um, training. So how to make individuals better at forecasting, uh, identifying who is good at the job, who is, who is good at prediction, and devising aggregation algorithms, which basically tell you, you know, if you have a, a crowd with differing views, what are the most effective ways to combine their views. Um, and part of that is, you know, knowing who is good so you can give them a higher way. So what I learned from Phil um, is um, the lessons that, I, that I've tried to extract is, uh, you know, he's just an incredibly broad thinker. He loves to come up with like a new big question that nobody has, has thought of before. And you know, once he is at it, uh, once he starts tackling that question, he just finds all kinds of new aspects and new deeper levels to connect to it. And after a while, he's he's you know he's he becomes like the deeper thinker who knows the most on this question, relative to you know almost everyone else. And um, and so. Uh, my background is I think of myself more as a methodologist. So like this big philosophical question or something that I've tried to make a second nature. But when I encounter such questions, I'm always thinking like, well, how would, how would Phil um, think about those questions, right? And he knows a lot more than I do. So it's, it's often he still has like a, an aspect that I haven't thought through, but it's a very useful exercise for me to, to think about it. And uh, Barb Mellers is incredible at finding, you know, a big important question and then coming up with a specific research design, like an experimental design that would answer it in a very rigorous way. And like, then think about like, so what's the contribution here to knowledge? What questions are we answering? How to best answer them and, you know, where to publish it, right? It's, it's from the beginning idea to like the actual implementation, design implementation and, uh, you know, finding a good outlet to it. And so I find that methodical process to be very, very useful for me. And I try to implement it in, in every study that, that I'm involved in. Um, but, you know, be, between the two of them, uh, they're an incredible team. And I was very fortunate to have had them as, uh, as postdoc advisors. And we continue to, to work together with them on, on, on research projects. Yeah, and actually, we want to talk to you about some of those research projects here in a bit. But um, mm -hmm. from your from your description of how sort of Philip Tetlock uh, operates, he kind of seems like the rare mix of fox and hedgehog. 
both the person mm -hmm. that is able to sort of hop around from subject to subject and sort of peep their head in like a fox, but also a hedgehog who's able to sort of get, you know, really deep into a subject that he's able right. to, uh, to, to deeply think. Is that a, is that a fair assessment you would say of, uh, I, I, yeah. I don't know what animal that would be. I, I don't know what happens when you cross a, a fox and a hedgehog. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe you should ask him. He 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 is the world's biggest expert on foxes and hedgehogs. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so often he would send me a tweet that he found that's 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 related to to our work. And initially, I'll be like, "What's the connection?" And then I'll think about it, and I'm like, okay, that's a new perspective that I wouldn't have thought of. But but now I can see why, you know, we should be thinking about that way as well. So. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree, but it's it's so much about just, um, you know, getting really into the question and staying with it for long enough and deep enough that, uh, you know, you can you can come up with new solutions that, you know, people just haven't come up with because they haven't spent as much time and they haven't been as obsessive with that question. So you sort of touched on this just now. Um... But you mentioned, you know, your interest in in prediction markets and sort of focusing on decision making within that framework. Mm -hmm. um, is that sort of what led you to your project after Good Judgment Project, but before launching Pitho being Poly Portfolio, um, which, as we mentioned, sort of looked at risk and and um, sort of a financial space in the investment space. Sure. Um, was there a connection there? Yeah. So basically, uh, the Good Judgment Project was winding down when we knew that you know that was the end of the ground, and so. I was I was looking for other opportunities and um, Polyportfolio was was a very unusual and cool opportunity in the sense that um, they basically had the machinery of, of a macro global hedge fund, uh, but wanted to build a front end so that uh, investors, not large investors, but any investors can access it and submit their views about macroeconomics. Like someone might say, oh, I think G you know, GDP growth in the US will be 1.8% and inflation will be at 2.5, right? And for, for investors who had views, it would devise an optimal portfolio and track it over time. And so I, I have a, a deep interest in prediction markets and in finance and trading and uh, so that that was a, a great way to combine it with with my work on on forecasting. Uh, and the other interesting part that I was sort of expecting, but I, um, it was still a pleasant surprise, was that I got I got to learn so much about just software development in an agile way with you know software development studio that was far away. Uh, front-end design or even things like writing investor newsletters and you know writing in a popular way to the public rather than in an academic fashion and so that was that was huge for me it was you know uh, the best entrepreneur training I could have uh, asked for while still getting a salary <laughs> so um, so that was great now um, the main reason why it didn't work out as, as originally planned was that we weren't able to find enough investors who had views about macroeconomic topics, but uh, wanted someone else to, to manage their investments, right? There were finance folks who had views, let's say about inflation and GDP growth, but they were often doing it themselves. And there were the 
on the other hand, were the passive folks who would just put put their money in a Vanguard or Betterment, and you know, even if they had views, weren't confident enough to express them in any way that they take an active position. And so, you know, perhaps with more time and more money, we could have found enough enough of a market, but it, it proved difficult. At, at that point when we were doing it, you know, in 2015, 2016. Do you think that in that sense, Poly Portfolio was a bit like ahead of its time? Because I feel like Clay and I recently read a book um, that talked about how, you know, uh, it's called Geopolitical Alpha by a guy named Marco, Marco Popich, and he works at a hedge fund. And right. his thesis is sort of that, um, you know, having a macro perspective is going to become much more integral to investing decisions than it has in the past where you know markets have sort of only gone up and the us was sort of the global hegemon um mm -hmm. and things are changing now do you think that you know if if poly portfolio had launched you know this year or maybe in a few years that that you would have had more more luck finding those investors with perspectives yeah another thing that had happened as of 2015 2016 is that there was just a big stock market rally so um you know, if you, if you just put your money in the S&P 500, you would do well enough. Right. And relative to that, you know, paying, you know, a percent or even half a percent to, to have an active manager who has similar or lesser returns just didn't appeal to many people, right? Now, active management can help you in some ways, like you can hedge some risk that you can't by just investing in the stock market. Uh, so it's useful to some types of investors above and beyond just like absolute return. Uh, but at that point, uh, the zeitgeist was, you know, you know, go passive, reduce fees, or you know, invest in in the few, in the very few uh, hedge funds that have outperformed the market recently. Um, right. And so it was uh, perhaps an uh, you know inopportune time for for, for this idea. Um, but as I said, it was it, it was incredibly um, interesting and a great entrepreneurial education, and it was just it, I, I was just there for a year, but but I learned so much that you know I then got to apply uh, at Pito, so it was very useful in that way. And um, sort of moving from you know 2015 and sort of moving into 2019. Um, mm -hmm. One of your more recent papers I thought was really interesting. It's called Small Steps to Accuracy. Um, mm -hmm. Could you sort of explain the question that you were aiming to answer in this paper, sort of the process you took to look at it, and sort of like what your top level takeaways were, and if you found a way to sort of operationalize those findings when it comes to making forecasts, because it seems like you, you know, found what good forecasters do in, uh, mm -hmm. throughout this research. Yeah, so uh, I was looking at it from the perspective of how do we find good forecasters so that we can subset them or we can uh, weigh them heavily in the aggregation stage. So I wasn't looking so much for like, how do we teach people to be better, but more like, how do we find the ones who are already good? Um, and one uh, set of issues that came out was just belief updating. We knew that people who update more frequently are better, mostly because they just pay more attention. But we wanted to see, is there something else to updating that can tell us you know, who is thinking about it in the right way? And so what, what turned out is that 
it's not just frequency, how often you update, but it's also the size, right? So like small updaters are, you know, let's say you go from 20 to 23% to 18% to 17, then back up to 25. So some people just update incrementally and some people just like to jump around. And, you know, if I see how you did on like 10 questions, just your, just your pattern of belief updates, um, then I can predict how you do on the next hundred. It's a very reliable, it's a sort of a signature that, that people have. And so the small frequent updaters tend, tended to behave more like uh, closer to like a Bayesian standard. So they were behaving more like Bayesians and they were also just much more accurate. I mean, it was uh, the size of updates, the average size was like the best single predictor of how accurate someone is apart from like their historical accuracy. And so it's hard, it's hard to, to say, hey, you should make small frequent updates because it's easy to sort of fake it um, and, and do it in a way that doesn't actually make you a good forecaster. But uh, we did extract some, um, some lessons, which is like, you know, if you start with a good base rate, then you probably don't need to update as much after that. Uh, but you should always look for opportunities to revisit, right? There, there's some information that's not very important, right? Some of it is just the passage of time without nothing happening, but it's still informative. And um, one way I like to think about it is that the geopolitical questions in GJP were more like a basketball game where like any one shot, you know, especially the beginning doesn't really turn around the game, maybe at the very end, but at the beginning, whether you make or, or not make one shot doesn't make a big change, but it's still informative. Uh, in soccer is different, right? Because when you score one goal, that's a huge update. Um, uh, but, you know, geopolitics, at least in the good judgment project uh, type of questions was more like basketball where there's like many ups and downs. And if you trace it over time, you're you, you, you do better and uh sorry did 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 you find though that um the really good like super forecasters even if on average they didn't update and and, and they took smaller incremental updates um mm -hmm. on sort of like the tail end of their updates were there instances where you know at the most extreme like they did do sort of occasionally some few sort of large updates when maybe they got the initial uh, an analysis in, incorrect. Yeah, absolutely, right? So so we're looking at the average, like the mean size of the updates, right? But within that mean is like, uh, the mean for super forecasters was like 10 percentage points, for regular forecaster was 20 percentage points. But even within that 10 percentage points, there were a lot of like 2%, 3%, 4% updates and a few like of 90%, right? So it's all about the average, but you know, most people find themselves on the wrong side of maybe and, and have to, you know, pivot, right? But uh, in super forecasters, it just happened less often. Um, but one thing that's very exciting uh, to me is that, like, I see this as sort of a more general pattern than just like probabilistic forecasting on geopolitics. Um, there's a study that, like, I don't have time to do, but if, if someone wants to do it, that's great. Uh, I'm happy to talk to them. Like imagine that you're an editor in Wikipedia and you have like a thousand articles and you're just trying to see like which one of those articles needs the most attention, right? One way you can do, you can look at that is to say, well, let's look at the recent edit history 
And if an article has had like one big update where they cut out a bunch of text and added and like added a bunch of new text, that probably, you know, it's great that someone made that update, but there's probably typos there. There's probably things that are not quite working out versus an article where, you know, you see that over the last month, there were like 20 very small updates. Like that tells you that someone, people are looking into it, they're paying attention, but they don't find so many big things to change about it. And so that article is probably in better shape than the one with, with like the very big update, um, right? Um, you can think about it like is in a software development project, right? Like if you wanna see like where there are likely to be bugs, like, yeah, if there was one huge update and then nobody touched it for a while, there's probably bugs in there um, versus like, if you know that a couple of people are like going in and out and making small corrections, that, that code is probably better. So I, I think there's, there's, a, there's a general sort of principle about what happens after you're making a bunch of small updates that it probably gets you to a much more stable place where there's less room for, for immediate improvement. And you could also probably like with things like Wikipedia and say on GitHub, also, right, you don't have Briar scores, but you do have rankings within those own communities. And I, I'm, right. I'm assuming any sort of advanced system would also sort of take that in, in, into consideration, right? Right. And, and I don't know, perhaps they already do that, but I'll be very interesting to see like, you know, someone just reads a thousand articles and rates how good they are and then looks at the pattern of recent updates, I bet you that there's a relationship where the ones with many but frequent uh, small edits are just higher quality than the ones with like fewer number but like larger edits. So it's speculative, but I think it's, it's definitely worth trying. Um, and so I just had one more question about um, that paper. I was wondering, can you speak a bit about what the research process is like within forecasting. So like when you're sort of first approaching sort of a very um, big product like this, like just how mm -hmm. do you think about starting something like this? You know, a lot of people who, who are watching might be interested in the research side of forecasting as well as sort of the more practitioner side of, of, of forecasting. Um, can, so can you speak, speak to that just a bit? Yeah, so um, initially you start with a question within forecasting. Our question was how do we find good forecasters before we know their accuracy scores. And then you come up with a bunch of hypotheses, right? Maybe they're the ones who update more frequently. Maybe they're the ones who write longer rationales. Maybe they're the ones who log in more often. Maybe they're the ones who say certain words, right? So that's where you know NLP can play a role. And then you look through a bunch of hypotheses and you try to find like, is there like any evidence of any relationship? Um, and you whittle it down because most 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 relationships are just not there. Or when you look at them across, you know, different subset of, of data, they just disappear. They're unstable. So you're left with a few stable relationships, um, and then you know you marry sort of the up the bottom up data driven perspective with with the theory, right? Like. Why should I expect that people and you know who, who have a specific belief of dating profile are better or worse, right? There's there's big literature in psychology on updating. Uh, Emma Sversky's early work was about you know how 
with uh, with Edwards was about how people are conservative Bayesians, so they have dates sort of in the right direction, but not enough. On the other hand, there's you know the idea that that people are very noisy in in their judgments, right? So if you're noisy, you might think that people jump around a lot. And so, you know, it was a mixture between like the practical sort of bottom up, like just look for any statistical measure that can tell you who's a good forecaster and uh, the, the psychology of it, which is also very interesting. And this happened to be, you know, both an interesting sort of empirical relationship and it relates to like an interesting psychological question. And so that was one of those rare aha moments when we found that, uh, that pattern that, you know, it, it felt great because it feels like so general. It's, it's, it's so easy to get the data. Anytime someone gives you a bunch of forecasts, you have their pattern of updating and you can use it across, you know, many different uh, sectors. It doesn't have to be geopolitics. It could be anything right. really. Mm -hmm. Now, we sort of want to move to a different subject and sort of talk about uh, getting wisdom out of the crowds and prediction markets, but both of you guys will have to give me one second. You can't mm -hmm. hear it because I have noise canceling on, but my dog is barking. I'm going to go let him out real quick, and then we will come right back. So okay. uh, we'll come right back here in a sec. All right. Um, sorry about that delay, guys. It, the Hector had to be walked for a little bit, but uh, it didn't take too long. Right. Um, what did you guys do on, uh, while I was away? Uh, we were just talking about scoring rules, you know. Oh, okay. Well, that, yeah, the usual. Well, uh, that that's actually great because um, we want to talk about getting the wisdom out of the crowd and talking about uh, some prediction markets. Um, sure. In actually the first podcast episode of the Global Guessing Weekly podcast, we had a super forecaster on Balkan Devlin, and he mentioned his uncertainty about monetary incentives producing better forecasts. Uh, and mm -hmm. in a 2019 paper that you were an author on called uh, Are Markets More Accurate, uh, More Accurate Than Polls, you found results that both confirmed Balkan's intuition and also contradicted it. Um, it should be noted that in your study you were using uh, paper money, but you found results that sort of were both for and against Balkan's uh, intuition. Could you briefly explain this paper uh, and the study as well as its findings? Yeah, so... We use data from the Good Judgment Project where we run a prediction market, uh, continuous double auction market. So the one that you know predicted runs that way, as opposed to, for example, Metaculus. So in a in a continuous double auction market, there's basically uh, bids and asks. So people are trying to to match up their orders, and the moment there's a match, there's a market price. Um, there's no automated market maker or anything. The new thing that we did there is that as people were submitting orders, we also asked them for their probability. So you might say, oh, I wanna buy this uh, stock for an event at 60 cents to the dollar. That implies that I think the probability of that event is more than 60%. So then we'll ask you, okay, so how likely do you think this event is? And the, the person would have to tell us, oh, I think it's 50% likely or 70% likely, right? Um, and so that allowed us to match first what people were thinking. And usually they were consistent, right? So if someone wants to buy at 60 cents, then they gave us a probability that was higher than 60% um, and vice versa. And then it also allowed us to aggregate those probability judgments and compare 
their accuracy versus the prices that were produced by the market. And what we found was that um, they were on average similar in accuracy, but the market prices were less accurate when there was several months until the question was about to resolve. So if you had to wait, if you have to make a bid and then ask for three months before the question resolves, the, the bids and asks you make, the, the market orders you make will result in less accurate prices than just taking an average of, uh, of the probability uh, values that you gave us. And, and, and then you found that in sort of the second half of the question duration that prices actually then ended up beating the beliefs. Um, it's actually a, a pretty interesting. So at the first half of the question, prices okay. seem to be pretty far out. Um, mm -hmm. In the second half of the question, there's improvements on the Breyer score, therefore the accuracy of the forecasts um, across the entire um, systems, you know, prices, prices and beliefs and just beliefs. But the biggest mm -hmm. decrease came in the prices category. Uh, do you have right. uh, a, a hypothesis in terms of why that was the case? Yeah, in markets, most of the activity happens right before uh, you you expect to get a payoff. So, you know, the biggest uh, levels of activity on are on election date, for example, right? Because people want to trade in, uh, get, get the question resolved, right? The election goes one way or the other, and then they get their money back. Um, and market traders in general, they're a little bit impatient. So not only do they not want to hold their money, uh, but also they just, they, they just want to, know what's going on and, and, and they want their money out sooner, even if it's just play money. And so that usually happens uh, even in the market with play money is that there's a lot more activity before, right before the question resolves. And that's the case for, you know, if people don't show up to, to give us orders, they also don't give us probability values, but uh, the, the market does well when there's high liquidity, right? When there's a lot of activity and polling is a little bit uh, uh, more robust to low levels of activity. So you can get a pretty accurate poll of, you know, three or five people, but for, for, for an accurate market price, you need somewhat higher levels of activity. But, you know, in those last few days, uh, the prediction markets, uh, before the questions resolved, the prediction markets did quite well. You know, on average, they were a little bit more accurate than, you know, the beliefs that those same people were giving us in, in real time. Um, and did you notice when people were doing it with prices that they were both purchasing based on their probabilities and then also purchasing based on, say, the difference of their probabilities to the price, and so taking advantage um, of sort of pricing arbitrage opportunities um, that individual forecasters might have. Um, in our new podcast, The Right Side of Maybe, um, we had a forecaster on who uh, did that same sort of uh, uh, move when it came towards uh, betting on the Suez Canal, uh, when, mm -hmm. when that would be cleared uh, on polymarket. And did you uh, see that at all in, in your study with the paper money? Yeah, so we found that people are directionally consistent. So most of the time, like 85% of the time, uh, they were directionally consistent, right? So if you say, I want to buy at 60 cents, you would have a belief that's above 60.
60%. And if you say, I want to sell at 60 cents, you'd have a belief that's below 60%. However, if you just go beyond directionality, you know, uh, people are a little bit inconsistent in the sense that you'd expect them to make the largest orders on when they're very, very when they're very confident that the price is wrong, right? Like if you if you can buy some shares at sixty cents, but you think you know the event is ninety nine percent likely, you should buy as many shares as possible because you think it's almost a sure thing that you'd win. Versus someone who thinks that you know the market is just underpriced by a few cents, and so there wasn't um, there there wasn't as much sensitivity to edge what we call the you know the expected edge that people thought they had. Um, they they made slightly bigger orders when they thought they have a big edge than a small edge, but it wasn't nearly enough uh, to to be consistent with like expected utility or Kelly betting or anything like that. And that's that's a separate paper we're still working on, which we call uh, edge edge and sensitivity. Basically, the idea that when people come up with you know two two opportunities, one with a low edge and one with a high edge, they invest almost the same amount in both. Um, it's almost independent of how much they think they're going to win. It, is that true across all class of forecasters? Um, did you notice yes. that more accurate? Really? So even like super forecasters, I don't know if they're in your follow-up paper, but they also are, are, are missing out on opportunities? Yeah, they, they're less edge insensitive than others, but uh directionally it's uh it's the same result and do you have an hypothesis for why that's the i mean i'm guessing that will maybe be in your paper but um anything you can share right now yeah at this point uh it, it's a little bit more speculative why that's happening um we're we're, we're wrapping our head around exactly that question that's why this has taken so long um uh, we know the effect is there uh but we would not speculate at this point on, on, on the mechanisms. Moving on to something that's a bit closer home for global guessing. Um, you know, we talked about some of the issues um, and dynamics of prediction markets. Can you speak mm -hmm. a bit about some of the problems that come along with um, metaculous type questions uh, and specifically sort of looking at uh, questions like in the aggregate? Um, you know, Clay talked about our recent right side of maybe episode. Um, we also talked about there some of the uh, ways that you can leverage the mechanics of the Metaculous platform to basically always end up in the black when it comes to points um, and just speak right. about how that incentive structure sort of affects accuracy of forecasts. And particularly mm -hmm. of sort of like uh, f aggregating those forecasts as well. Yeah, so um, in your, I believe it was uh, number four, um, podcast number four, you, uh, you discussed that topic. And um, so basically the idea is that if you have the median, which you do in Metaculus and you, you make a forecast very close to it, you're almost guaranteed uh, to, to earn positive points, right? And so that creates a disincentive for the person to do hard work and research because they know they can get some points either way. And also, it makes you it makes the consensus overly confident about that medium because there's a, a bunch of people uh, who are just trying to make you know a few points from it. So 
the first issue with that is, um, well, is that is that something that a few people have noticed, but uh, they don't do so often, or is it or is it a big issue that's a uh, practiced by a lot of people, and b um, in some ways it it hurts the it hurts the reputation of Metaculus as like a place where you know people get properly scored and everything like that, right? So the first thing I would do is just try to look at the data and estimate the size of the problem. Um, and then if it is a bigger problem, then um, uh, something that, that you could do is um, a very draconian solution would just be to stop showing the distribution of, of, of the crowd before someone has given you an initial estimate. That would make questions much less uh, popular um, because people do want to know what the crowd is saying. Um, but another issue you can do for, for uh, you can, another measure you can take for the final scores is to say, you know, we show you an, a distribution of all the forecasters so far, right? It's some kind of unweighted average, right? Or the median of everyone in the crowd. But for the final scores, we actually score you against the distribution of, let's say the best forecasters, and we don't show you that distribution. So you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know what that median is because you wouldn't know who those forecasters are that go into the median. And in that way, um, you know, any one forecasters who just joins wouldn't know exactly what they would be scored against. So they wouldn't have an easy way to just pick up a few points and then the other oh, no um i was just gonna yeah so that's sort of looking at the scoring side i was looking sort of at um both in terms of like the forecaster in terms of how you then present that median to them because mm -hmm. there is cases right like say um a lot of people legitimately are reaching the same number but from different perspectives you right. know that's that's useful for me as a forecaster where if three people with you know probably didn't use the exact same evidence reach 60%, the real mm -hmm. number might actually really be 63%. Um, sure. And if you're trying to aggregate the entire community forecast to create um, an aggregated forecast, um, that way, you know, you, you might want to sort of build that factor in, but then if you have this idea of people spamming the median that might throw that off, do you know of ways to sort of, you know, counteract that? Um, yeah, on, on, at the aggregation stage, there, there are many things that you could do. Um, one is to just downweight forecasters who always just, as you call it, spam the median, right? Um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be the top scorers anyway because you can't get to the top of the leaderboard just by you know, getting a few points here and there. But uh, yeah, you can be more aggressive at you know, upweighting people who are different from consensus and better uh, on average from it and down, downweighting people who just, you know, who are just very close to the median all of the time, right? So that's, that's one thing that you could do. The, the other um, thing that Jack Saw and others have written about is the idea of pivoting, which is, you know, the idea that 
if people have some kind of joint information, um, you can you can push them away uh, from from that joint information. So uh, the easiest way to explain it is, let's say I'm a forecaster, I'm just joining a question, and the median is forty percent. And I say, okay, well, I would say something a little bit higher than the median. Let's say the probability is 45%. So at the aggregation stage, what you can do is to say, okay, well, this person probably thought the event is highly likely, but they looked at the median and they moved towards the median, right? So they moved maybe from you know 50% to 45 after seeing the median. So instead of taking their forecast at face value, I'm going to push it back to where we think their independent judgment would have been if they hadn't seen the median. So in a way, you're pushing you're pushing people away from the median um, by some by some factor which you can work out in you know in a backcasting uh, setup, and in that way. You know, you'd be looking at uh, at folks being you 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 as opposed to taking people's beliefs at face value. You try to to say, what if these people were looking at the question independently? What would they would they have done? And and when you do that, uh, you know the the median moves around a little bit, and and you get a different aggregation. Um, it's a little bit more complex. There's more parameters that you can mess up potentially, but it is a way to deal with that issue of joint information from, from the crowd. And then thinking about, so we talked about the input and in terms of the metaculous aggregate, I'm thinking about what is the best way to deal with this issue for the individual forecaster who is viewing and trying to leverage that um, community forecast yeah i mean again the uh, i think the way to do it is to say here's you know the average of everyone in the crowd the distribution of everyone in the crowd we're going to give you an initial estimate for your score that's based on that full distribution but your final score would be based on you know a distribution that you can't see so you don't know what that median would be you can't, uh, and and you won't be able to just make a few points from from guessing where it will be. Uh, just by making you guess where the median of the best forecasters will be, we're basically asking you to guess what the true probability is, right? Because uh, your belief should be that you know those best forecasters would have done their homework, and the best way you can match them is to do your homework as well. Um, so that's. That's that's the theory at least, and that's something that we call proxy scoring rules, which is that you're scored not against the ground truth, but against some kind of a proxy measure of what the best belief is, what's the most accurate probabilistic belief is at this time. And in order to do that, you have to not have that knowledge of what that best belief is, and 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 that's the idea of sort of the hidden distribution of, of best forecasters. So just moving on a bit, um, mm -hmm. you're currently working on a paper right now with some researchers from uh, the USC Information Sciences Institute, 
that's looking mm -hmm. at uh, the role that NLP, natural language processing, might play um, in right. helping people forecast better. Um, you know, specifically, there's an area of NLP called sentiment analysis, which I know is used a lot by businesses to try and understand how, you know, customers are liking their product or not liking their product. Are there ways that you see NLP, but even more specifically that sentiment analysis um, being leveraged in communities like Metaculous or the Good Judgment Open um, to sort of curate information um, and sort of give those signals where they might not exist otherwise? Yeah, it, it, it... It's a, it's a very active area of research. Uh, so what we did in this paper is we were looking at uh, natural language processing from people's, from forecasters' rationales, basically to, to, to try to gauge how we should weight those forecasts, right? If, if someone writes specific words or specific phrases, then um, for example, when they use numbers and terms that refer to time, they tend to be slightly better forecasters. So if you adjust the weights, you get a better aggregate, right? So the point here was purely aggregation. You could, however, use it in more of a, an elicitation setup where you use it to improve the experience of forecasters on the platform. And one way you can do that is to highlight uh, rationales or comments that you know, an NLP analysis, you know, deems to be, you know, likely to be highly useful, right, to others. And you can, you can do that in a way through crowd feedback, like people up, up voting each other's rationales. That's, that's one way to do it. And the, the NLP analysis gives you a different way of, of getting at that which is the idea that you know some rationales are better than others some people are better at writing rationales than others and so you can upweight or you know uh, highlight those contributions so that more people are seeing them uh, that's that's probably the next step of how i would apply it in a in an elicitation setup in a crowdsourcing platform and I know you don't want to talk too much about this paper because it's both still being written and there's a series of sort of main authors on it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, feel free to to talk about them and working with them. Um, mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you could just sort of broadly talk about the approach that you guys are using to leverage natural language processing to elicit better aggregation. Um, I went through the paper and I believe you guys are leveraging uh, word sense disambiguation. Uh, if you could mm -hmm. just just sort of you know, not to steal anyone's thunder, but just provide a little bit um, of a summary and, and context for uh, our listeners. Yeah. So uh, first, first to say, Yuzhuang um, uh, Huang is the is the lead author of that paper, and he's doing most of the work. And whenever someone who is a graduate student or a postdoc does most of the work, I think it's important that uh, you know they get most of the credit. So, like, I uh, I, I just want to. Want to say that? Um, so again, what we do with the natural language processing is just trying to to figure out, you know, if someone gave a rationale, or if someone made their forecast at a specific time, or you know, the forecast is associated with any number of of features. Is that forecast, you know, likely to be accurate? more or less accurate, basically. Uh, 
and uh, there and and the system that uh, that Huang developed is basically looking at all the different types of features. I believe there's maybe several hundred features about each forecast, including qualities of the rationales that that are attached to the forecast, and and, and trying to to gauge that what weight to place, and so. I see this as very promising when you have a lot of data, right? So when you have potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of forecasts over many hundreds of questions, at that point, a method like this starts to become really, really useful. When you just launch a tournament, it's really hard to train that algorithm when you have just you know, a few hundred data points. But once you've, you've run it for several months or several years, um, that's where uh, I believe like NLP and just, you know, more, more sophisticated machine learning uh, methods like this one are really, you know, in their prime and, and can really give you a, a, boost, a boost of accuracy. So sort of building on that answer, um... And the work that, you know, you've done a lot of work, uh, whether it's with Pitho, uh, sort of studying humans versus machines and forecasts. And as we talked about in the last episode, humans are way better at machine models, at forecasting things where you have pretty robust uh, base rates, uh, mm -hmm. such as clinical trials for COVID treatments. But I was wondering, sort of, are there advantages of machine models? You know, what are those key advantages uh, that machine models have over human forecasters and how can we leverage those machine benefits when, you know, trying to get better human forecasts? Yeah, so the main advantage of um, machine models is that they're scalable. People people call it scalable. I, I'd like to define it a little bit further as to call them vertically upscalable. So that means uh, if you have... If you have a machine model and you've trained it on like 10,000 data points, you can throw another million data points at that question and it will keep giving you forecasts. And if anything, it'll be better, right? So that's what we mean by vertical. It's like, if you give it more questions of the same type, it, it can, give, it can give, keep giving you accurate forecasts. And it, if anything, it gets better and better. Um, but it's not so much downscalable. Like if you had fewer data points, the model would get worse. And if it's not, and it's also not horizontally scalable. That is, if you keep asking it questions that are of slightly different type than the ones that you were asking, you would also have to either redefine the model, which takes time, or it would be giving you irrelevant answers. So. Uh, if you have many, many data points and many questions of the same type, great, use a model. Uh, it's a great sort of first filter to get from like millions or thousands of data points to a few questions where you really need accurate answers. And then, you know, you give those dozens or hundreds of questions to, to humans to give you that extra bit of accuracy. If your question definition keeps changing, then you're better off just asking human forecasters uh, to begin with, because you would spend too much time just redeveloping your model for the different types of questions and probably won't get it to work uh, really well. Great. 
Um, Pavel, now this is the time that you have almost certainly been waiting for, because in last week's episode, you got a special version of the Rapid Fire Round, because we didn't want to spoil it for this week. So this time, Mm -hmm. you are going to get the standard two forecasts that all of our other guests have to answer. Um, Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The first one, we are interested in what is the likelihood that Putin or Russia annexes Mm -hmm. more territory in Eastern Europe in the next five years? Wow. Okay. I would put it at uh, 15%. So it's it won't be a shock if it happens, right? The recent base rate is, you know, something like that has happened in the last 10 years. Um, Putin is going to be in power for the foreseeable future and, uh, you know, has nationalistic tendencies. And there are uh, territories that are uh, on which there are many ethnic Russians, so, so they can claim that uh, you know that's a rightful thing to do so i would i would put it at, at 15 percent over the next five years okay um and the second question is what is the likelihood that we detect credibly detect alien life in the next 10 years and alien life being defined as uh, cellular life protoorganisms uh-huh. and so that's so the the question is, we first detect something that we haven't yet detected, right? Yes, unlike last week's question where we went a little more conspiratorial. Right. I would, I would, I would say, uh, I, would, I would put it at 1%. 1%? I think, I think you, are, you are owning the, the lowest point on that forecast. Why 1%? Well, first of all, I... Um, I heard uh, Regina Joseph, uh, my, my business and research partner, was uh, a little bit higher than me. So, you know, as a, as a Bayesian, I, I update the, when, I, when I hear, you know, super forecaster judgments um, a, a little bit higher. Um, I would say this hasn't happened, or at least we don't know that it has happened. So the base rates are very low, but, you know, our technologies are getting better. And um, it is something that, that could happen. Now, I don't think it's at all likely that we find, you know, sentient beings in that time frame. But, you know, cellular life, I, I, would, I would go with 1%, um, uh, rounding up to 1% at least. All right. Well, Pavel, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us this week and for joining us last week. Um, it's been a pleasure. Where can people find you? Uh, what can they look forward to next from Pavel? Um, yeah, so I'm at uh, Pavel Diatanasov uh, on Twitter. So find me there and uh, follow me. And uh, you can also uh, go to our company webpage, which is pito.io. Uh, we'll be posting information about our upcoming tournament, uh, the Human Forest Tournament, which will be uh, starting in in September of this year, September tw- 2021. So this is the next big uh, research project. And um, 
we're very much looking for participants of all stripes. So uh, thank you once again for, for having me. And um, it, it, was, it, it was truly a pleasure uh, to, to, to talk to you guys.